PBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 9, Episode 5. This week we covered the, I can't say that it was even a murder, but the mysterious death of Kaylee Anthony. It was a small child. Her death occurred in Florida in 2008. Really crazy case. She was missing for about a month before her grandmother reported the police that she was gone. Lots of twists and turns with her mother, Casey Anthony who made up several stories and lies about where Kaylee was at uh, before ultimately she was arrested. Kaylee's remains were later found. All of that led up to a murder trial for Casey, and she was acquitted. And that was very shocking to a lot of people. Um, There was really kind of an uproar around the country. Uh, My guest this week was retired FBI profiler and former New York City prosecutor and good friend of mine, Mr. Jim Clemente, uh, who has covered the case in depth. And Jim had a lot to say about it. Uh, joined the studio, as always, by Mike and Zach. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. And I know Zach's been doing a lot of research, and Mike's got a lot of questions from you. So, Brad, for a short break, we're going to go and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I know usually right here uh, at at the beginning, I asked Zach his opinion of the case, but Zach is actually pretty well-researched in this one, more so than, than I am, I think. Yeah, I've watched a few documentaries about it. Right. So uh, with Zach's knowledge of the case and mine, I think I think this week the, the best thing we'll do is just actually go through the questions and you can help me answer some of these as we move along. Sounds good to me, Bob. All right, guys. Our first question comes from Harmony. What do you think actually happened here? Do you think it was an accident or in cold blood? What do you think, Zach? I honestly think it was an accident. I don't know if it's the accident that they tried to portray, which was the pool accident. Right. I don't, I don't think she purposely killed her daughter. I tend to agree with you. I don't think that it was an innocuous accident. Mm-hmm. I feel like if this was an intentional homicide, it would have been better thought out. I agree. Better planned. You know, there wouldn't be you know, decaying flesh in her car and trying to make up excuses for a month. I, don't, I, I, don't, I think that if the plan was to kill your small child, that you would have done a better job of planning it. But I also don't think she drowned in a pool. I agree. I, I think it was, she was possibly given a sedative, some sort of sedative that just right. went too far. That, that's what I think too. I think, I think that just based on the behavior that we're seeing here from what we know of the case, it seems to me, it is just my hypothesis, but it's that Casey did something that's either illegal or, or simply frowned upon. and. That act accidentally led to the death of Kaylee. So, for example, one of the theories out there was that she used chloroform or Xanax or whatever, something to try to get her to sleep. And, you know, so it would be something like that. Like she used chloroform to try to get her to sleep and it killed her. 
Well, now, yes, technically it's an accidental death, but it was in, she was committing a crime yeah. when she did it and therefore had to cover the whole thing up. So I, I think that Casey Anthony is probably guilty of doing something illegal that resulted in the death of her daughter and then covering it up. I don't think she she intentionally killed her, and I don't think it was just a, an actual accident like drowning in a pool. Why wouldn't you just call you know call EMS if your daughter drowns in a pool? No, I totally agree. I I think that it wasn't it wasn't just a an outright cold blooded murder, right? Like she didn't. I don't think she intended to kill her daughter. I think something happened in the process, and that's what where we led to. Agreed. All right, this next one's from Sarah. Would the prosecution have had a better chance at getting a conviction if Kaylee's body hadn't been found? How much did it hurt their case that they couldn't prove to the jury how Kaylee died? Well, I think that if they didn't find the body, they couldn't prove how she died either. But it may have gone a long way to maybe offer some circumstantial evidence. I, I think she would have been acquitted either way. I would say they, they could, it would have given them more space to create a story. You know what I mean? It, it allowed it would allowed more room for speculation, which may have helped. But you know the 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 finding the body of the medical examiner seems like did a shit job, and that was part of this. You know the, we didn't have, to my knowledge, any good forensic testing of the duct tape, um, the cause of death, the the original autopsy, the cause of death says homicide. So that's you know, and that's a big thing, right, for the jury. Like the uh-huh. medical examiner said, this is homicide, but it was listed as homicide by undetermined means, which is ridiculous. I mean, they're saying, I know that someone killed her, but I don't know how she died. But it's kind of what we were talking about uh, last week with the Greg Lance case with arson investigators, how it can be junk junk science. It's when they overstep and say they they can know things that they can't. This ME couldn't tell how she died, and therefore the cause of death should be undetermined. But to say the cause of death is undetermined, but I know the manner was homicide was just wrong. and. I think the defense pounced on that at trial, you know, and then you had uh, for the defense, you had Dr. Warner Spitz came in and said it was a terrible autopsy. Didn't even like cut open her head or anything. There were there was there was things that should have been done in the autopsy of part of a standard autopsy that should have been done that weren't done. And so I think what we see happen a lot of times, you know, you have state's witnesses that aren't supposed to be that way. You know, people like, you know, like the medical examiner. They are supposed to be just an independent scientist that has given you just the facts but they're working hand in hand with the prosecution and then sometimes and i'm i would assume that's probably what happened here is that the prosecutor says well you need to list the cause of death as homicide because we have a weak case and if you say it's homicide then we can convict her of homicide but i think it backfired on him i know the defense really tried to use that to the, the body in the crime scene in their favor by saying the crime scene was compromised right the the first individual that came across the body admits to moving the moving it around, picking right. it up with a stick. It's like a utility worker, right? Yeah, and and he, they admitted to picking it up with a stick, picking the skull the skull up with a stick uh-huh. to see what it was. And right. I, I know the defense really pounced on that to say that the whole thing was comp- you know the whole crime scene was compromised and they couldn't rely on anything. Right. Well, and I'm sure the defense kind of threw him for a loop too when they came in and they presented the. The defense that you would expect. So up up until that point, until her body was found, you know, Casey was still saying that there was this imaginary nanny that ran away with with Kaylee, you know, and until her until her body's found. 
And I'm sure that if the, the state figured they were going to come in and basically deny everything, like mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with it, but they kind of threw them for a loop. And it's a, it's a tactic used often in debates where I'm going to agree with part of what you're saying. So they come in and say, yep, we put the body there. I think she said her dad is the mm-hmm. one that actually moved the body there. Like she died. And so basically offered this alternate explanation that was hard to prosecute against, really. If, if she's sitting here saying, have no idea how she got there, has got nothing to do with me, then there's all this circumstantial evidence that points towards her. But instead, they're like, no, we know how she got there. We put her there because she drowned in the pool. And now all of a sudden, the prosecutor, now not in the letter of the law, but in the eyes of the jury, now you have to prove that what they're saying happened didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, She says, basically, and, and she did not testify at her trial, I don't think. I was looking that up earlier, and it looks like she she was she either wasn't going to or ne- or never did. I don't believe she did. Yeah, but you know now she says, well, you know through the defense they present, well, Kaylee drowned in the pool, and we hit her body because we didn't want people to know. And now you prove that didn't happen, which is impossible because there's no forensic evidence that indicates one way or the other. And I and you know Jim talked a lot about the overcharging and things like, and we'll get into that because that gets pretty complicated too. But to me, like that was, you know, her defense from things that I've read, they said they, they didn't do a great job. They just kind of won by default because the prosecutors didn't do their job. But really, I think that trial strategy ended up being a brilliant trial strategy because they, they put some onus of what happened onto Casey Anthony in a way that didn't lead to her conviction because it wasn't even her that hit the body, right? It was supposedly her dad. And by doing that, now the prosecutor is left with the task of not proving what they think happened, but they're trying to disprove what Casey's defense said did happen. Mm -hmm. To me, it was almost like the defense went in with a strategy of not proving that she didn't have anything to do with this. Right. They were went in with a strategy of proving that it wasn't first degree murder. Right. Which they did. Yeah, exactly. They really did. But it felt like there wasn't really, you know, they weren't going for like, look, she's innocent. They didn't do it. Right. They were going in with the whole fighting the first degree murder. Yeah, and I think had they done that, mm-hmm. I think she would have been convicted. Mm-hmm. I, I think the circumstantial evidence would have, would have built up enough that she could have even been convicted of first degree murder. So imagine imagine the defense is, I have no idea how her body got there and had nothing to do with this. And then the state's like, well, she was missing for 30 days. She lied to her mother the whole time about where she was at and why she wasn't around. She lied to police about this nanny. She lied to police about this job that she had. The cadaver dogs found that they were, there had been decaying human remains in her trunk of her car. She killed her. In that case, kind of going back to the previous question, you had the body not been found. With those facts, I think she would have been convicted. And with the body being found, had, they been, had their position been that she's completely innocent of any of this, I think she would have been convicted. But by instead presenting an explanation for those things in an alternate theory, I think that's probably more than anything what led to her acquittal. Mm -hmm. Kelly says, was Casey's boyfriend ever questioned? I I don't know that she had a boyfriend at the the time. If what they're referring to or if who they're referring to is Kaylee's father, no one to this day, as far as I know, knows who the father is. Casey's always said that she doesn't know who the father is. And then I've read, I read a bunch of stuff about where people have tried to get that out of her. And one, one quote I saw was that she will take that secret to her grave as to who the father of Kaylee Anthony actually was. As far as a boyfriend, I thought that she was out 
you know, that was kind of the thing, right? She was out kind of partying and doing things during that time when her daughter was missing. If she had a boyfriend, I've never heard anything about him. Did you, Zach, you watch all the documentaries. Is, is, did a boyfriend ever come up? They don't talk about it much. And Jim did talk about it in the episode that there was a supposed boyfriend that she had moved in with. And that's oh, right, why right, the parents right. hadn't seen her. Right. And from everything I heard, that individual, whoever that was, cooperated pretty well and didn't seem to know anything. Right. And I really dropped the ball on that because you're exactly right. Yeah. I'm trying to juggle three cases at once. Yeah, that's right. Because he said that maybe that was part of the motivation. That mm-hmm. Was because that he didn't want a family or didn't want to be with a woman that had a child. Right. That she got rid of the child. But everything that I've seen, it seems like he cooperated uh-huh. pretty well. I, I don't know what he knows or what he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. And everything I've, like the documentaries I've watched, they don't really touch on him a whole lot. Right. So it's kind of a mystery out there. Kristen asks, did Casey ever come out and say that she saw Kaylee in the swimming pool, or was it just her lawyers who said it? I heard that she now says that she doesn't know what happened. Yeah, so from what, what I was reading, she did not testify at her trial. So, and, I, and I don't know exactly, did they cover much of the trial in the doc, Zach? Because I'm curious how they were able to present this alternate theory of Kaylee drowning without Casey testifying. So I, I don't know how they got that in. You know, watching the documentaries, I can't fully remember how they got to that point, but I do know there was a few other people that did testify. I believe her, her mother testified, right. and maybe that's how they got it in, was, was talking to her mother through testimony. Well, and her mother has come out and said since then that she believes that's what happened. Her, yeah, her mother believes that that is the, the story. Right, and, and her dad says that... Her dad is very adamant against that, that that is not the story at all. And I, I want to know if they're still together because of the way this is shaken out. I was just reading an article that had, and I, I want to say it was from last year. I read several of them. I know at some point after the trial, they together did a like a two-part episode on Dr. Phil. Mm-hmm. And they talked about the same thing where the mom said that she thinks that it probably was an accident and the drowning. And the dad said, I don't believe it. Basically, he said he thinks that she has intimate knowledge of what, that Casey has intimate knowledge, if, if not had killed her herself but doesn't believe the accident theory at all. But as far as Casey goes, so I don't know, from, from what I read, she never actually said that this swimming pool thing happened. That is what her defense presented by whatever means they presented it during the trial. And since then, when she has done interviews, she has said she doesn't know what happened to Kaylee. So even with that, so she's saying that the, the defense theory mm-hmm. is not true. In the, in the fact that she doesn't know what happened. So them saying that she found that she'd been drowned and her dad you know, hid the body, that she doesn't know that that's true. Laura says, I'd like to know the stance on Casey's relationship with her brother. I never hear anything about how he handled what happened in court. Do they still keep in touch? I, I don't know specifically about her brother, but from everything I read, like she is completely isolated from her family. As a matter of fact, some of the articles I read said that she just she doesn't have any real, real personal relationships whatsoever other than it's, it it said something weird like other than the, the, than a small legal group like people that represent her or whatever is kind of her only social life. But it said that she doesn't have any close relationships, not even with any family. I don't even remember her. I mean, I didn't know she had a brother. Yeah, I didn't either. Through everything that I've seen, they never talk about another sibling or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's always the the. Casey and her mother and father. Yeah, that's actually when I was when I was when I was googling and looking up to answer to the answers to some of these questions. Mm-hmm. Every time I asked about a brother, all I got was all these articles saying that she has no relationship with her family, but nothing about a brother specifically. 
Heather says, have any of the jurors said why they decided the way they did? And I also heard that Casey recently had another child. Do you know if this is true? Were, were any of the jurors on the documentaries? Uh, I think one of the documentaries I watched had a juror on there, and, and they talked about basically the reasoning we said is that they didn't have proof that it was first-degree murder. Yeah. But I do know that a lot of the stuff that I saw with the jurors is they were talking about the aftermath. Like, they were getting death threats and all sorts right. of stuff. So I think a lot of those jurors have laid low and aren't doing interviews because of that. Yeah, and the research that I was doing, there were a lot of legal opinions about you know, you know, lawyers and law schools breaking down how she was acquitted. And there seems to be an overwhelming consensus from the legal community that they didn't understand the the jury instructions okay. from the judge, or they didn't have a good understanding on it, and that they had, and I think some of that's from interviews they did with juror, the jurors afterwards, and that they they had a warped a warped view on what reasonable doubt meant. Where like that when they discussed it with the jurors, they were saying things like, "Well, they they just didn't prove to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that she did it. I can't be a hundred percent certain that she did it." Whereas you know, reasonable doubt is you know, is is there a doubt you have for a reason? Is the best way I've had that described to I me. Mean, there's no real legal, legal definition of it, but that they just they they couldn't be completely sure. And then you know, another thing that's come up, and you may have a question about it later, we might as well cover it now that. There's been a lot of discussion about the lesser charges that Jim was talking about, where he said that you know the, the jury didn't have the option to convict on lesser charges than first degree murder, and that's why she was acquitted, which is not in, not entirely accurate. So she was char- the, the jury went into the box with the ability to charge her you know, with the charges on the table were first degree murder, aggravated child abuse. I don't remember the third big one. And then then there were like lesser charges, like lying to police and stuff, which the the defense openly admitted she lied to the police. So those were easy, but those were misdemeanors that, you know, that she was let off a time served for those. So what what Jim was getting at, like either first degree murder or aggravated child abuse, in both of those cases, you have to prove that she knowingly and intentionally either killed or harmed her child. So, so yes, aggravated child abuse is a lesser charge, or it was aggravated. I think there was aggravated manslaughter as well. But by being aggravated, that means that there that she intentionally. You have to prove she intentionally harmed the child, and that's what they were not. They couldn't even find the cause of death. There was no way that they could prove that there was an intent to do anything there. And and I, Jim, I know in conversations with him over you know years past when he was doing the case and you know, when it was all fresh in his mind and we were discussing it while he was filming his show, he told me, but I don't remember what charges like like I think like a simple manslaughter charge might have done or aiding and abetting murder after the fact or, or there was a lot of other charges that would have carried substantial lengthy sentences had the jury been given the option to convict on those. Yeah, I think it's pretty evident that there was enough evidence out there to prove that she had something to do with it. Right. But not to prove that she intentionally did it. Right. Which was the big holdup. And that was, so the, if memory serves, that the other charge was aggravated manslaughter. And by putting aggravated in there, that's what screwed him over. You know, because people are like, well, they had an option for manslaughter. They didn't. Mm-hmm. It was It was like aggravated manslaughter. So manslaughter is unintentionally causing the death of someone. This is not a legal definition. This is the way I understand it. 
unintentionally causing the death of someone through some either malfeasance or neglect. Like, you did do something wrong Mm -hmm. that caused the death, like vehicular manslaughter. Okay, so obviously you didn't drive down the road and say, I'm going to kill that person. And if you're not drunk or anything, you're just driving and you, you know, you swerved, you know, you dropped your cell phone, you were distracted in some way, you hit a car and killed someone. Well, you took their life because you did something wrong that led to you taking their life. Be charged with vehicular manslaughter. Now, if you get, you know, if if you get super drunk and then get behind the wheel and then cause the death, then it can become aggravated manslaughter. Because you were com- you you were committing a crime while you did it, so just getting behind the wheel while you were impaired was already a crime in and of itself. You made a decision to break the law, and in breaking that law, you caused the death of someone else. And there have been people that have been charged with murder in those instances, depending on which state and, and what they have. You know, where you basically don't have to show that you intended to kill somebody, and it's different in every state. We went through that in Bob and Weave talking about the uh, uh, the George Floyd case. But that that was the issue. It seemed to me that all of the charges that the jury had the option to convict on all involved the big charges, proving that Casey Anthony had knowingly and intentionally killed her daughter. And, and there was just no, whether she did or not, there was just no evidence there to prove that. Nina says, what is Casey doing now? And has she ever spoken about what happened to her daughter? Like I said, she's she's come out now and said that she doesn't know what happened to her daughter, and that she, that you know she didn't know anything about the, that pool story. That what that as far as she knows, that's not what happened. She doesn't know. As far as what she's doing now, there's like websites out there where people are like try. I mean, people hate her, which is why she's living such an isolated life. Well, I asked you that earlier when you were looking it up. Like, did she change her name? Because I feel like she would have. That would have been something I would do immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, she. I didn't read that she had changed her name. All I saw was that you know people were you know. There are people that know where she lives in Florida and are like updating people on her movements and that she had, she's apparently a photographer now that she started a photography company, which along the the name change, it was not, it was called like case photography instead of Casey, mm-hmm. I guess, unless this, that was randomly, she, she picked case. But yeah, so as far as I know, she's in Florida and she's a photographer and she just doesn't really have any friends or family. Sarah says, since Casey Anthony was tried and acquitted on murder one, can't they retry her on murder two? It's not double jeopardy since it's not the same charge. Or am I wrong? I think you're wrong. I'm not positive. Like, this has never really come up before. So I had to do some research in the, into the, uh, the, the Fifth Amendment that says that you can't be charged twice for the same crime. So my understanding is, no, she cannot be tried again because the way the double jeopardy standard is written has to do with basically the, you you can't be you can't be tried twice for the same crime not that you can't be charged tried twice for the same charge if that makes sense so so we're so the, the crime is the death of Kaylee Anthony and she was charged with you know first degree murder and aggravated manslaughter and aggravated child abuse and all these different things those are all a bunch of different charges for the same crime the prosecution does not have the option or ability based on the double jeopardy standard to then come back and say, well, that didn't work. So now we want to charge her with manslaughter and child neglect. You can't do that again. So, so, so the way I understand it, and you all know I'm not a lawyer, 
But my understanding of double jeopardy is that you cannot be tried for the same crime more than once, not the same charge. So just changing the charge and getting a do-over just doesn't cut it. Stacy says, why the heck didn't the grandparents ask or go looking for Kaylee before 30 days? Well, the, the, on paper, that looks like an obvious, like, big problem, right? Because mm-hmm. when you first start reading about the case, it says, you know, that, that, that they lived at this, in the same house and with, with her parents. And how could they not notice she's gone for that time? Uh, but it does sound like it was more complicated. Uh, we, as Zach mentioned, as Jim, had, as Jim had said on the show, that she was like moving in. Or I, I never got a clear answer when in my reading, thinking back on it. Also, keep in mind, I recorded this interview with Jim almost a month ago now. But it, it didn't say that she was like completely living with this guy, but that she was spending. She was kind of part. I, I don't know. Did, did you get a clear answer on that? It sounded like that was her excuse. That's why they hadn't seen her. Is she had moved in with this guy? She was gone. Yeah, and the and the other part about that, what I was what I was driving at is that Casey was constantly giving excuses. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, uh, imagine for those of you that are grandparents out there, or, or if you're a parent and have grandparents, you know, I think I live two miles away from my parents, and they might go a month without seeing my kids, mm-hmm. and we're very close, but sometimes we're just busy, and they'll be like, "Oh, can you stop over?" It's like, "Oh no, the kids are doing this, or the kids are doing that," or and, and in Casey's case, she kept saying that Kaylee was with. You know, she's with her, she's with the nanny or she's busy or they're out of, like, she just, she just kept putting her off. And since they're not living together, it's not like this is a daily occurrence. Like, mm-hmm. where's she at? Where's she at? Where's she at? Throughout the course of that month, she had, you know, kept asking where she was. And then K- Casey kept presenting what seemed like plausible explanations for why she wasn't there. She called 911 when she called, when she did. When she got into Casey's car, and at this point, it had been a month. She was already getting suspicious and upset about where Kaylee was. And then she got into Casey's car, and she said that she smelled what smelled like a dead body in the car. Like, it, it stunk in her car. And that's when she thought something happened, and she called 911. Yeah, I have to agree. That's exactly what I thought. You know, there's a lot of times that my parents might go a month or more without seeing the kids for exact reasons. You know, that they might call and say, hey, I want to come get the boys. Well, they're at so-and-so's house, or they're playing here, you know. Right. So it's not totally unplausible for them to go that long without seeing her. You know, maybe if she was used to living there and not seeing the child, that's a little different. But right. with the with the excuse that she had moved out, it doesn't seem too unplausible that they would go that long without yeah. seeing her. And that was a big thing. I remember when I first started reading it, reading about it a month ago. Mm-hmm. And I've studied the case years before, but just going back into it that you know, a lot of the articles say you know, she was living with her parents. I was like, well, how the hell did they like? When her daughter's not coming home to sleep in their house every single night for a month, but that the fact that she wasn't living there just really makes it you know understandable that mm-hmm. you know as long as as long as she's given them a reason why she's not around, they probably accepted that. And without, I mean, obviously not defending anything, but I think that's just another way that the media spends things too. Is they say they haven't, you know, we haven't seen her in thirty days, you know, and right. that just seems like a long time when you say oh, we haven't seen her in thirty days, right? So I think that's just a way to kind of spend things to make it seem more horrific and and put more emotion into the charges against Mm -hmm. Casey. Yeah. All right. And our last question comes from Sarah. When does season 10 start? Good question, Sarah. I want to give you an, our plan is, is first of the year. And so as of now, that's still the plan, but with the caveat that the open records divisions of the agencies that we need documents from are still not open. And, and so we're, we're kind of handcuffed 
now we're still working on the case. We're working. I mean, in the in the case that I, that is looking like it's going to be season ten, uh, we've already had new witnesses come out. We're already, you know we're, we're starting to to schedule and record interviews for that season. So we're working on it. But I just I don't want to start the season and go five episodes in and be like, oh, we're stalled now because we can't get the autopsy and we can't get the crime scene photos and we can't get this and we can't get that. So I'm hoping things start opening up again soon, like very soon, and then we'll have a better idea. As of right now, we're still shooting for the first of the year. And believe me, I want to get you guys hear me struggle through these sometimes where it's my brain is wired to dig into one case and all the details for months and months and months at a time and learn the case thoroughly. You hear me struggling through this sometimes where you know, we're recording two, three episodes at a time, you know, within a week for these episodes. And, and, and we're doing that in all this. And we do really appreciate all of your support. You know, our, our numbers of downloads in the podcast have, have remained, have remained constant as we've been doing this. You guys, we appreciate you guys listening to them and engaging and all this stuff. And I'm enjoying doing it. I'm very much enjoying speaking with these other content creators about the cases and getting it, learning more. You know, I've learned a lot in the last week about the Kaylee Anthony case, all the, all these cases. We got some really cool ones that we're going to be covering soon. So I'm enjoying it. Uh, but it is also serving a very good purpose for us is we want to get started into our full time season seven or season 10 case as soon as possible. And we want to be loaded up with information when we start that process. So by using this format and being able to do a few episodes every week and then you'll really, you know, getting ourselves ahead, it's giving us the freedom. I, I, I need to make a trip for our coming case. And so we're, we're building up and building up to where, you know, I might have, you know, a two week span where all our episodes are good and recorded. And then I can, I can dip out and not be recording from hotels. I can, I can, I can dip out and go do research and record interviews. So. All that's coming. As for again, I don't have a clear date for you yet. We're planning on the first of the year, but a lot of that is dependent upon whether or not the uh, the open records divisions opened up. And, you know, and why we're on this discussion of transition. If you guys could let us know, maybe I'll make a poll on social media on Friday when this when this comes out. But one thing that I've been Mike and I have been toying with doing is once we shift back into season 10 like back to normal and and start doing the the podcast or uh, the truth and justice as normal one case per season i've really been enjoying doing these episodes as i said and so what i'm considering doing is continuing to do these interviews with other podcast hosts and content creators about cases and then releasing them as a different podcast not even on the truth and justice feed you know, so we would have you know the Truth and Justice podcast, and then start a new podcast called The Case of, which is what this season is called, and then continue putting these out. It's much easier for us. Again, it's interview format. We can do a bunch at a time. We can get well. We can get well ahead. Uh, but it would allow us the opportunity to for me to kind of still be able to do this, but then focus in on our season ten case on the Truth and Justice podcast. So let us know if you would be interested. If you if you would be, we don't want to do it if nobody cares and nobody's going to go listen to it. But if you'd be interested in another podcast called The Case Of, where we would continue doing what we're doing here in Season 9, but on a completely different podcast, let us know so we can decide if that's something we want to put our energy into. But as for now, thank you guys for put, I say putting up with. Hopefully you're enjoying this season. And, uh, and as we're going through, we've, we've got a lot of – part of the reason I want to possibly continue doing this is 
as we're getting into this process, I'm talking to more and more people and getting into more and more cases. And I'm like, oh, I want to talk about that one. I want to talk about that one. I want to talk about that one. But we only have so many weeks left in the year. So I'm enjoying it. Thank you guys for bearing with us and sticking with us through as we're trying to navigate these uh, these COVID times. And uh, with that being said, thanks, Mike. Thanks, Zach. And we'll see you guys next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Three seconds of silence. Hello, everybody. Hey, you want to give me some silence, dude? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't Bob and Weave, man.
Because we all know you <laughs> sure as heck don't give me any silence on Bob and Weave. I'm trying to give you silence, and here you are just here you are just talking. Rude, mean guy. <laughs>